You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back. It's great to see there's still a lot of uh, energy in the room um, after what's been a really interesting uh, day and a half so far. This is the, sec- uh, the session on restructuring sovereign debt. Um, we have a fantastic panel who I'll introduce in a moment. My name is Jesse Griffiths. I'm the head of development strategy and finance here at ODI. Uh, I'm going to say a couple of things before I introduce the panel. But first, just to remind you that if you're on Twitter, uh, you can use the hashtag Africa's Rising Debt. And don't forget to use ODI's Twitter handle, ODI Dev. We also got a great audience out there online. You're very welcome, uh, which will be several times larger than the audience here in the room. So we're encouraging the audience online to ask questions, and I will uh, read them out for the panelists. So before I introduce the, the panelists, I just wanted to say two things. Um, on restructuring sovereign debt. The first is, there's quite an important, I think, meta question that we all have to have in our minds, which is, what is unsustainable debt? So what is it that makes debt unsustainable and therefore need to be restructured? And we've seen, I think, um, that, you know, the IMF has a debt sustainability framework, and at the moment there are eight countries who are classified as being in sovereign debt distress, and that means that they have difficulties repaying their debt. So there's obviously an element is, can the debt be repaid or not? Is it actually possible? But particularly in the SDG era, I also think we have to think about, uh, you know, some debt might be being repaid, but there are impacts of that repayment on uh, reduced government expenditure in other areas. And so there may be debt that is sustainable in terms of it can be repaid, but unsustainable if you think about the impacts uh, on uh, poverty reduction programs in those countries. So it's not just a straightforward um, financial question, it's also a moral and political question as well. So that's the first point to make. Uh, The second point to make is when we think about how to reduce unsustainable debt, I think it's just worth reminding ourselves of the most recent history of that in low-income countries, the heavily indebted poor countries initiative, and quite how long that took to get to the stage where debt was reduced. So the origins were in the, in the 1970s and early 1980s, and much of the debt was export credit agencies' debt, so it was quite different from the, you know, the debt build-up that we're seeing at the moment. Um, and the onset was in the early 80s, and the first response was actually to lend more, so there was an increase uh, in lending from official creditors and from the international financial, financial institutions. Um, and then as that didn't help, obviously, to reduce the unsustainable debt burden, we had a series of debt restructurings at the Paris Club. I think there were four during the 1980s and 1990s. And what actually happened was the debt stocks continued to rise, but the debt repayments came down. So it became more easy to uh, to meet the obligations of that debt, but it didn't actually reduce uh, the debt problem, and that's where we ended up in 1996 with the HIPIC initiative uh, at the World Bank and the IMF. But it wasn't until two, the year 2000 that the first country got full debt relief uh, at completion point in the HIPIC initiative, Uganda, 
and then there was a wave of countries between 2000 and 2006, and a second wave between 2008-2010. So you're talking about a 20-year time span to get to the point where the majority of countries uh, managed to get their debts down to sustainable levels again. So, and even now, there are 39 countries eligible for HIPIC and 36 have passed through it. So there's still three waiting for the full debt relief. So I think that's an important thing as we talk about debt restructuring, restructuring sovereign debts, to think about how can we do it in a more effective, more rapid manner in the future. Um, then, just before I introduce the panelists, just one thing to say about the debt situation now is obviously very different, and I think what I've certainly learned or relearned from the last day and a half is that it's obviously more complicated with higher levels of private creditors, non-Paris club creditors. It's more expensive. So we saw a very interesting slide from the IMF yesterday that showed that although debt-to-GDP ratios in low-income countries might not be at you know, what might be regarded as worrying levels, uh, debt repayments as a percentage of government expenditure were actually quite uh, similar to how they looked in past uh, debt crises, and it's also more risky. So we've got these challenges of the new landscape to face, and so the panellists here will help us to think about two things. They'll help us to think about the challenges of this landscape, but most importantly about what are the solutions, how can we help to restructure debt, sovereign debt that's becoming unsustainable. So that's all I wanted to say. Uh, now to introduce the panellists very briefly in order. So we have Penelope Hawkins from UNCTAD, and then Tim Jones from the Jubilee Debt Campaign, uh, Benny Schneider from RAS in New Delhi, but also you will know her long history working for UNDESA and UNCTAD on debt issues, uh, Deborah Zanstra from Clifford Chance, uh, and then Isabel Bui from the Paris Club. So I'm going to ask them all to speak in order, and I'm going to be, I apologise in advance, quite strict about keeping to seven minutes each so that we've got plenty of time for questions from the floor and also questions online. So, Penelope, the floor is yours. Thank you. Um, I'm just going to ask you to bear with me while we find the presentation. Here it is. Um, the first slide really just tries to reveal what we try and do at UNCTAD, the United Nations Conference for Trade and Development. Um, Although it's not in the name, we have always um, included finance as part of our activity because, after all, you can't do trade or development without finance. And I represent the debt and finance branch of the Globalization and Development Strategies Division, which is one of five at UNCTAD. And really, we try to combine three components into our work. That is clearly research is very important, consensus building, and then technical cooperation. And something like we're going to talk about now, the principles on responsible sovereign lending and borrowing, is something that, of course, includes all three of those components. Certainly, it was a very well-researched process. A lot of consensus building went into it. Um, and then there was some technical cooperation, a pilot that was run in five countries. Um, those of you who are involved in um, from ministries of finance and so on, and also know our branch through our DIMFAS program, which of course works as a technical um, unit to actually um, support debt management in many of our G77 member countries. So let's just talk very briefly about these UN principles on responsible sovereign lending and borrowing. Um, 
in around 2009, we started to get funding um, from the Norwegian government. Um, this is very much overdue um, because these issues were raised by UNCTAD. Um, the need for some kind of debt restructuring program was raised in UNCTAD um, as early as, you know, in the 1970s. Um, but in 2009, there is funding, and so there's a process that continues with um, hard work, hard research, consensus building, and then the second process of that then works into endorsement and trying to flesh out those principles into a roadmap. Now, the principles were um, good faith, um, transparency, impartiality, legitimacy, and sustainability. And of course, as principles, they are very broad, and many might say that they encompass many of the other the guidelines and codes that um, we also are talking about today. The roadmap really tried to work further into that debt workout me mechanism um, and really try and set out the implementation program with the key objectives in mind um, of ensuring that um, they would actually be uh, a prevention of a financial meltdown, a facilitation of a very useful restructuring and an idea of leaving the debtor country with room to grow after the process. So we're now beyond 2015, I hear you say, and what has happened since then? Well, since then, first of all, the Norwegian government's um, generous as they were, and thank you for that, that uh, money has now dried up. Um, we see the legacy in such documents as the Addis Ababa Action Agenda. Um, many of the paragraphs recognize the need for responsible sovereign lending and borrowing, but in particular paragraph 97 refers to it. And of course it's a set of principles that are referred to in many other fora. So for example, um, earlier this year you have the EU Parliament um, specifically calling for endorsement of these principles as a way forward. Because it's the UN, of course, there are also um, political processes that run parallel to um, the work that one does within the Secretariat process. Um, and in 2015, um, there was also a political process that went through the General Assembly. Um, it was a G77 initiative led by Argentina. Um, UNCTAD was called as, on as the secretary, the secretariat to the ad hoc committee um, on the debt restructuring mechanism going forward. Um, and the resolution extended the five principles to nine. So the, the additional ones included the sovereignty of a state to establish its own macro policy, um, equitable treatment for all creditors, um, sovereign immunity of the state against foreign domestic courts and majority restructuring of deals. Um, there was in fact a voted resolution. Um, those of you who are familiar with the UN process note that typically um, a consensual resolution is preferred and very often if it is assumed that a resolution will not be um, accepted on a consensus basis, it is withdrawn. 
but in this particular instance, um, it was uh, the resolution went to the vote, and although there was a majority that passed it, um, it seems to me that uh, voted resolutions become non-resolutions, and so that too has become a kind of dead end. So what is the way forward then? Well, we would say that the principles for sovereign um, and sorry, for responsible sovereign lending and borrowing do have strength as a soft law a process. Um, soft law typically over a period of time includes customs and very often can become um, legally binding rules. But before that, of course, they are voluntary. Um, they're self-imposed and we refer to observance <coughs> rather than compliance. They have the advantages that they are flexible, informal, and pragmatic, but then also the disadvantages that they are discretionary. And there's an element of uncertainty and lack of predictability as to whether countries that have observed them will indeed stick to them. Of course, there has been in this process of two decades that in fact you've referred to earlier, Jesse, a proliferation of standards and guidelines and codes all of which indeed suffer from the same soft law um, lack of legal binding or enforcement. Um, we would argue that the principles as a UN process still can be um, seen as the most inclusive of the processes so far, um, that there has been ownership by many of the countries. Um, it is very broad. It embraces both the actions of lender and borrower. Um, and of course, its scope is based on sound legal <coughs> international principles and embraces many of the ideas from the other guidelines and market-related approaches. But of course, we're left with what about implementation? And the EU Parliament, the same EU Parliament that commended these principles, said priority has to be given to finding a way forward to stop irresponsible practices and finding binding deterrence. Um, the process for implementation requires country leadership um, and it requires intergovernmental work to make the process go forward. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you, Anne. Thank you so much for sticking to time. I mean, I think that's really interesting because I'm not sure a lot of people who may work on other aspects of debt know how, quite how much work has been done at the UN in terms of developing the principles and the roadmap. And I think you're absolutely right. The question is who will lead us forward into implementation? So, Tim, that sets you up nicely for your, your remarks. <coughs> thank you, Jesse, and thank you for, to ODI for inviting me to take part in this panel. The Jubilee Debt Campaign is a UK part of the global movement which campaigned for debt cancellation for the millennium and has continued since then. And as Jesse said, the debt cancellation that we eventually got through HIPIC and MDRI took a long time. When I first started, I was uh, in school when I went on my first ever political protest in 98 in Birmingham when the G8 summit was here in the UK calling for debts to be cancelled. And as part of that campaign, it both called for debts to be cancelled, but also said we need to set up the systems to prevent debt crises arising again. And one of those systems is the way we deal with debt restructuring or when a country can no longer um, pay its debt or can't, more importantly, pay its debt alongside meeting things like the Sustainable De Development Goals. And our worry is that we continue 
still in response to crises to make mistakes of the past, to lend more money into a crisis, enabling lenders to escape and the crisis remains for the country concerned. What this does is a moral hazard. It creates a system where for lenders, you can lend with less responsibility than you would because it is likely you will be bailed out by someone else. It's not just an issue for Africa, it's across the global south, and it's across Europe. What we've seen in Greece is that the EU lent money which bailed out banks who had previously lent the money. Um, we, um, it was mentioned a couple of times yesterday, recently um, did some research into, on average, who African governments' external debt is owed to. Uh, and this pie chart uh, shows that. And the key thing really is that it's spread across lots of different creditors. Roughly, a third is owed to the private sector, a third to multilateral institutions, and a third to other governments, and 20% owed to China. Within that, and that doesn't take account of the interest rates, the debt service. If you do, then the private sector seg segment of this pie chart grows massively. I was limited in how many slides I could show, so I've kept that one out. But if you did, that would show that the private sector is about 55% of the interest payments and the other creditors shrink accordingly. So when we deal with debt restructuring, we need to address all the creditors and so often things are done piecemeal bilateral negotiations with the, between different groups. We saw great advantage in the UN um, General Assembly process that Penelope referred to as being a way that all creditors could be brought into a room to discuss how to do debt restructurings and think that for the rich countries who refuse to engage with that it will become a missed opportunity and um, that um, they fail to take to um, get proper discussions going. But even within the way the current system works, there are changes that could be made to stop this bailing out happening. Uh, I want to talk very briefly about two examples. So the first is Ghana, um, which uh, started an IMF program in 2015 after the gold price and then the oil price fell and the currency devalued rapidly against the dollar. This graph, the blue line, shows at the start of the IMF program the expected external debt service as a proportion of government revenue. The green line is the IMF threshold above which debt crises tend to start to happen. And so the IMF predicted that uh, if the, their policies were followed, it would stay above this green line, but it would gradually move down towards it. The red line is if there was one economic shock. Uh, we warned that um, the IMF's predictions were likely to be very optimistic. They depended on very high economic growth, that government revenue within that would increase as a proportion of GDP, that the interest rates on external debt would fall, even though in 2015 we we're in a very low interest rate environment already, um, and there would be um, quite significant cuts to government spending. Of those things, growth has been a bit lower, government revenue has stagnated, external interest rates have increased, and actually government spending is the one thing that has been um, implemented as predicted or more so. Government spending per person has been cut by more than the IMF said it would need to be at the start of the programme. So when you put all that together, what you get is um, the situation now is this purple line. 
is how much debt service Ghana is now actually paying, way above the blue line predicted. Now, one of the reasons this is possible is because the IMF and World Bank have lent $1.8 billion over the course of this program, to, which is then used to meet interest payments. External interest payment over the same time period has been $1.6 billion. So the two almost match up. Most of that is to the private sector, to bondholders who are getting 7 to 10% returns on their bonds. An alternative example is CHAD, where the IMF has actually required a debt restructuring from um, Glencore, the commodity trader, as part of its um, uh, loan bailout program. But in this debt restructuring, this is from the IMF's document after the restructuring took place. And the blue line, again, is the expected debt payments into the future. And it very eerily falls along the um, green line of what the IMF says is a sustainable debt. Chad has, the restructuring has done just enough that the IMF can now say the debt is sustainable. But uh, any one economic shock will push um, Chad well above that green line again. And Chad remains at high risk of debt distress. A few years ago, the IMF said in a paper that debt restructurings were, are too little and too late. But IMF policy is still playing into that. They happen too late because the IMF lends the money in in response to a crisis, which enables debts to keep being paid rather than restructured. And when eventually they do happen, as in Chad, they're too little. They don't actually deal with the unsustainable debt burden. So that's... Uh, there's lots of things that this panel will discuss. That's our one key point of change that we could make at the moment. The, um, there's another area when you have a debt restructuring, we could have national level legislation to enforce that across all creditors. Uh, Deborah will go on to talk about problems with holdout creditors, and we've seen useful innovations in recent years in countries like France and Belgium to require... Um, debt restructurings that are agreed with a majority of creditors to uh, be enforced across everyone. So I hope we get a chance to talk about that as well. Thank you. Great. Uh, thank you again for keeping to time. I know there's plenty more you, you could have said, but that was extremely interesting. And that statistic of 55% of interest payments being private sector debt is very quite dramatic. Uh, I, think, I hope also there might be some IMF representatives in the room who might have something to say about your, your second point as well. So now we move along to Bennu. Uh, thank you, Jesse. Um, so for the work at the United Nations, uh, uh, but I should mention since IMF is not on the panel, that the IMF has also done considerable work in the area, which I'll refer to in my presentation. Um, so the basic premise, uh, since I led the work on this at the United Nations in New York, was that there was no political support for a sovereign debt restructuring mechanism. Uh, that was in evidence uh, when the SDRM proposal collapsed in 2003 at the IMF, and also the resolution which Penelope referred to at the United Nations, that there was no political support for a sovereign debt restructuring mechanism. And I should mention, not just from the advanced countries, but there were many countries within the G77 also that were not supporting a sovereign debt restructuring mechanism. So the work that was carried out is that then all stakeholders generally support the market-based approach to sovereign debt restructuring, a voluntary approach. So what are the shortcomings in the market-based approach? 
and then incrementally what is it that can be done to improve the market-based approach to sovereign debt restructuring and that is some of what I'm going to talk about. Of course, what are the challenges? The challenges as you referred to are too little, too late, litigation, lack of comprehensiveness, um, uh, comparability, burden sharing between uh, debtors and creditors. So those are the challenges in the field of sovereign debt restructuring that remain. And so uh, one goes into it, what can be done in the market-based approach to, to uh, rectify some of these or to find solutions for them going forward. Can I have my PowerPoint uh, on screen, please? OK, thank you. Um, so, uh, uh, and at the outset, I should mention prevention is better than uh, debt restructuring. We've already talked a lot about transparency, information, standardization of contracts, liability management, debt sustainability being part of it, all of them being part of prevention. Uh, and, um, uh, uh, but in stabilization then, uh, what are the things that we're going to talk about? So I'm going to talk some about provision of safety valves in contracts both for bonds and commercial bank loans, um, uh, how you could reduce the threat of holdouts and litigation, uh, improving the process of sovereign debt restructuring, that is the role of trustees versus fiscal agents or creditor committees, um, and the role of the IMF, the lending into areas policy. I doubted whether we'll have a time in seven minutes to go through all of it. So the report was circulated, and I'd urge everyone to read the complete report. Now, this was work that was carried out at ICMA and supported later by the IMF. Um, uh, the U.S. Treasury uh, had a working group, and later on the work was carried on at the IMF, where uh, there was an evolution in the contracts for bonds. So after the SDRM failed, the first thing that happened was to introduce collective action clauses in a series of bonds. The work that has been carried out recently are two additions to it. One is how would you aggregate uh, between different series of bonds uh, uh, to, uh, for creditor coordination. And the second is the paripasso, since that was at the root of the litigation uh, for Argentina, which led to improved language on uh, paripasso. And which uh, 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 both these clauses are now are being uh, introduced in many of the bond issuances taking place. Uh, but I should also mention that we, since the focus is on Africa, the aggregation clause really has no meaning for a country, some of the countries in Africa that are issuing bonds because the volumes are too small and you don't have enough series that would benefit by aggregation. So uh, the threat of holdouts would be higher in Africa <coughs> compared to other regions where you might have a stock of bonds with aggregated clauses. And Deborah may want to talk about what could be done in the case of Africa where you have just a few series of bonds and the volumes are low. Now, this is uh, uh, a new introduction into the debate, which was not carried out both at the IMF or in the other work carrying, being carried out at other places. And this is that many of the bonds for commercial bank loans that are in existence may still look like the bonds that were there during the Latin American debt crisis. So, uh, so the message here is to replicate the progress that one has made in bond contracts in the commercial bank loan sphere. 
so for instance, why shouldn't Parupasu language uh, equal ranking of creditors be relevant in the bank loan context? Um, just a minute. Um, and Parupasu means equal uh, ranking of creditors in a debt restructuring, generally, you know, the same. And uh, um, so what could be done in, con uh, in contracts, for instance, is that in a syndicated loan, uh, an amendment can only be made by unanimity. Uh, you can have supermajority clause in commercial bank loans contract to make them comparable with uh, bond contracts. You could introduce, for instance, a sharing clause. That means if anyone litigates, the, the uh, uh, the uh, benefit which the litigators get out of it, they would share it equally among all creditors. So the incentive to litigate would go down with that if there was a sharing clause in a commercial bank loan contract. And then issues with jurisdiction. I'm not going to go through all this, but just to give you an idea that there's considerable work to be done to improve commercial bank loan contracts and to replicate some of the progress that has been made with uh, bond contracts. Um, now, two other issues that I'm going to touch on briefly. One is that there's generally this idea that uh, uh, investors lose out in a sovereign debt restructuring, and the estimates done by Moody, by Trebish, by Krish, and others, which show the huge losses which the investors have made in a sovereign debt restructuring. Now, the losses that they're talking about is net present value losses. That is the expected loss in a sovereign debt restructuring. And the method is the chart that you see of there is the, uh, the market yield. Uh, the chart is for Ecuador, what you have in front of you. Now, the red line, the first red line shows um, the date at which the uh, yield was picked up to calculate the net present value haircut. Um, and, but as you can see, that over time, that goes down. Now, that is only a loss if all the bonds were sold on that day, and that was the loss. But the truth is that all the bonds do not get sold on the date. And the longer the period they hold out, you see that, that the yield curve has been going down. There were no losses. Uh, so there's a lot of noise in the yield curve because it represents market risk, uncertainty, investors' preferences, all of that. Uh, and it just uh, is kind of a line showing an ex uh, expected evolution of the economy at that point at, at the dread line. But the real outcome has been different. So as a result, what happens is that the expected losses are overstated. But if a, uh, if a bondholder holds out the entire period, there are actually no losses. And so this is a, a kind of a fictional concept in saying that the investors have huge net present value losses. So what I do this for Ecuador is actually I look at the cash flow, the coupon payments. And uh, the green line, as you can see, is what the payments would have been uh, before the restructuring. And what the blue line is then what happens after the restructuring. And as you can see, that coupon payments have been much higher. And so that uh, investors have actually had a huger benefit out of the cash flow, so the debtor has paid the price for the debt restructuring. Now, interestingly, if you look at the second uh, point of uh, 
restructuring. That is when Ecuador bought back a huge amount at a discount of their bonds. Uh, the actual payment schedule actually shifts to the left. And so you can say that uh, although Ecuador was referred to as a rogue debtor at that stage for buying its own debt, but where the country is concerned, it benefited after that kind of an exercise because it was being left. But the first line, and I have examples in my paper for Russia also as an example, that a net present value kind of analysis on recovery values are overstated. And uh, uh, if you look at the cash flow, you can actually see the price that which the debtor is actually paying for the debt restructuring. And I know my time is up, so I just want to make a point if one chart, and we can see the other charts if necessary later. And this is on the point whether there is a creditor committee that is essential during a debt restructuring. And this shows the haircut and um, the duration of negotiation. And as you can see, then the chart and the scatter plot, that uh, it really didn't make a difference whether you had a creditor committee. The results are all over the place. Uh, because there was a move to try to make creditor uh, committees a part of a contract that the debtor could only negotiate with the creditor committee. In reality, you need flexibility. The choice depends on the situation. And the empirical results show that you don't necessarily need a contractual uh, arrangement for a creditor committee. I'll end here, but there are other issues, and you could see them in the report, in which you have process questions, um, uh, role of trustees, um, uh, regulation, the role of the IMF, all of which need some work in improving the market-based approach to sovereign debt restructuring, and I'll end here. Thank you. Thank you very much, Benny, and I know you had a lot more to say, and I definitely recommend the report you're referring to to people, and I think as we know, the increasing amount of debt that's owed through market-based mechanisms, whether they're bonds or banks, um, what you had to say about how we could improve that is important. And also, this point you're making about who is actually paying, or how much are people paying, the, the, the creditors paying, if there is a restructuring, is not as high as uh, it's sometimes thought, which is also a very interesting uh, point. So then, now we're going to move on to Deborah. Uh, over to you. Just click on this one. Okay. Super. So um, thank you to ODI for inviting me to be here with you today. Um, so as a legal practitioner in, in sovereign debt restructuring, what is you know the framework in which we operate? Very broadly speaking, we typically see IMF involvement, we see the development of the debt sustainability analysis, we see a country maybe approaching the Paris Club, we see um, debt being treated at the Paris Club, we see the private sector potentially um, facing a comparability of treatment um, scenarios. So these are some of the policies which sort of frame um, the context of a sovereign debt restructuring. But then we talk about the market-based approach, and what do we really mean by that? What we really mean by that is once this empirical work has been done and it has been established what the sort of financing envelope is and what needs to be done to restore debt sustainability, and none of these things are uncontroversial, of course, but assuming that there is consensus on this, um, as practitioners, we like to see creditor engagement. It's not necessarily um, one that has to be done through just one committee. 
um, and it doesn't matter how it comes about. But what you need is to have some creditor engagement in order to ensure that creditors, a large number of them, come on board with whatever uh, transaction needs to be executed. And then when we talk about the market-based approach, what we're really saying is what um, contractual provisions do we have that ensure the majority can support a transaction, that the transaction can be implemented, and that any holdouts can be crammed down, etc. So a lot of the work in the recent past, which has been mentioned, has been focused on uh, debt securities and bonds in particular, because for many countries they now um, constitute the large majority of the debt stock of those countries. And so, as has been mentioned, um, and I advised ICMA on this work, um, we developed the aggregated collective action clauses which allow the pooling of debt across series of bonds. So it makes the cram down slightly easier, in particular where you have, as Penny has mentioned, countries that have many series of securities. Um, and this has been developed in relation to, in particular, New York and English law-governed instruments. Um, and has been taken up, the IMF is reporting on a quarterly basis uh, in about over 90% of, of, of the bonds that countries have issued since the aggregated collective action clauses were published and since the Paripassu clause was published which disavows the rateable payment interpretation. And that's um, obviously a, a very good thing. Um, what um, that work does not do is address, and this was mentioned yesterday, the um, increasing use of domestic instruments, domestic bonds in many countries. Um, so essentially, I think going forward, uh, many countries should now be looking where they have uh, a sort of sizable domestic capital market to develop their own domestic law um, collective action clause for insertion in their debt instruments. Um, and that's, I think, uh, a very important work that could be done um, in the future. The other thing is Sukuks. There are quite a number of Sukuks in the market. Some have adopted the new technology, some not. And there are, of course, bonds that are governed by other laws other than New York or English law, which are foreign to the countries issuing those debt securities. And some technology could be built into those um, instruments as well. Um, the big problem at the moment is we have a lot of legacy bonds, um, over 900 billion it has been estimated that does not include this new technology. So for example, in the case of Venezuela, most Venezuelan bonds do not have aggregated collective action clauses. And also you don't see their take up in state-owned enterprise securities which is a shame because, as we're seeing in Venezuela, PDVSA has issued many, many bonds, but it does not have collective action clauses of any sort, uh, new or old um, technology. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is, you know, as a, as a practitioner in this area, if I can move on to the next slide, is we're seeing, and this is especially the case uh, in Africa, the loan markets really coming into their own again in, in many African countries, partly through the funding that Chinese policy banks um, and other market players are giving, uh, but also there are still uh, banks providing funding by way of, of, of loans. And so Beno has mentioned one or two things, but I, I think to say Paripassu clauses, again, um, countries should be looking at whether they disavow rateable payment interpretations, 
changes to payment terms in loans typically require unanimity, and they always do if the loan is bilateral, by default. Uh, and that can be a really severe problem. Many loans don't have voluntary prepayment events. So if a country suddenly finds that it can refinance itself with better terms, it doesn't actually have the mechanism to prepay voluntarily. And if it does, it may have make holes, etc., which will offset uh, the ability to refinance on better terms. And the other thing is, um, they, you have to look, when you're doing a, a restructuring of, of the, a stock of debt of a country, you have to look across many instruments, bonds, loans, repos, um, <coughs> derivatives. Many of these other types of debt instruments have much more developed events of default representations and covenants than do sovereign bonds. And so I think in order to facilitate uh, liability management, reprofile pre-default and not just post-default, countries need to be looking at their debt holistically from a legal perspective. If there is, for example, an event of default in a loan agreement, which is written to say that if the country engages with creditors, that will cause an event of default, that could mean that if the country wanted to renegotiate a contractual arrangement, a loan agreement, obtain financing or better terms, do a liability management exercise, it might trigger an event of default under that loan. We could trigger a cross-default under other debt instruments, and that would not be a good thing. So I think in terms of debt restructuring, we need to be looking much more about um, the legal terms of stocks of debt across the board. We need to be looking at those terms when those arrangements are put in place, not just when a restructuring is necessary. And countries need to be very smart about keeping track on cross-defaults in particular, so that they have the flexibility, if they have a bunching up of maturities or there are better market conditions, to go out there and seek refinancing on better terms without being fettered from doing so by um, existing um, contractual fetters. Um, and that just very broadly takes me into you know, this question about uh, the complexity of debt arrangements that we're beginning to see. So we see, or not beginning, they've been out there for some time, but we're beginning to be more conscious of it. We're seeing repackagings being done. We're seeing bonds being pr placed privately. Um, again, countries should be thinking about, in the day one arrangements, what transferability provisions are there? To what extent can they limit the types of creditors they may be facing across the table in years to come? Uh, and I think we're going to see a lot more into creditor issues arising. And this isn't just among the private sector, but also as between the private and the official sector, the definitions of what each of these things become increasingly blurred, as do the private sector providers of finance. You don't just have banks, you have equity houses, you have commodity traders, you have many, many more categories of people very active in this market. Um, one thing we haven't mentioned, I think we, we touched on GDP-linked bonds yesterday, but there's other um, instruments also being thought through um, that may give countries, if not debt relief, at least a breathing space uh, following, say, natural disasters. So, for example, um, some work is being done on hurricane bonds, catastrophe bonds, if there's a, an environmental disaster of, of some type, could contractual provisions deliver 
uh, an entrenched mechanism to allow that country to have a breathing space whilst it um, you know, faces the immediate um, environmental crisis. Um, I th you think you've, you've told me I'm out of time. Um, so, but Tim mentioned <laughs> very briefly, uh, we are seeing at national level some uh, use being made of legislative powers to address uh, what are perceived in some countries as uh, negative um, market players, vulture funds, and so forth. So we've seen some moves in, in Belgium and, and France to address that, that risk. And I think that always has to be done very carefully because you don't want to um, negatively impact the secondary market in such a way that you affect liquidity and that comes back to bite the sovereign in terms of the pricing of primary market debt. Um, but it's interesting that those um, uh, uh, elements are, are being put in, in, into um, the, the space. Thank you. Thank you, Deborah. Again, very interesting and a, a, a lot of food for thought. And I think um, to your focus on how to build into contracts bond contracts and other, and, and other contracts, if you like, or uh, ways of preventing future crises or resolving them is a kind of critical issue, and, but also, as you pointed out, doesn't necessarily help existing uh, debt to change. Um, so that's, and it's good to have you and Benu following the same discussion about markets and private-based debt. But now we're moving to Isabel from the Paris Club, which is a group of official creditors, so we get a, a, a different perspective. Isabel. Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me here and be able to discuss this uh, very important uh, question of uh, how to make uh, debt restructuring work. And uh, I think to, to understand the current challenges and, and, uh, and, and what are the solutions uh, to those challenges, it's important maybe to come back on the current debt landscape. I think you previous speakers have talked a lot about this uh, uh, yesterday and today, so I will try to be brief. But I would like to highlight maybe three, three main elements. The, the first one is that we witness in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, but also mainly in low-income countries, an increased level of debt and increased debt vulnerabilities. And uh, according to the IMF, almost 40% of low-income countries are today in high risk of debt distress or in debt distress. This is a source of concern as um, for some of those countries, um, they have benefited from uh, debt relief through the HIPIC initiative just a few years ago. So it, it really raises the question of how to prevent um, those uh, unsustainability path. The second uh, trend I would like to highlight is the, the change in the composition of debt. Though in low-income countries have turned to new sources of financing, either coming from uh, emerging uh, bilateral uh, creditors or uh, to the financial markets, which raise new challenges and, and also new risks. Um, it, it creates um, uh, it raises uh, risks linked, uh, first of all, to less concessional debt, uh, but also linked to market risks, um, such as refinancing risk and uh, interest, rate uh, interest rate risks. It also raises the question of coordination of creditors with new actors uh, that are not uh, necessarily part of a framework for coordination. And last trend I want to highlight is uh, as Deborah said, the, the emergence maybe of, of, of more complex debt instruments. And for instance, we've, we've seen the, uh, the rise of uh, collateralized debt, uh, where um, a lending is uh, secured by an asset, and which might create uh, a 
problems of coordination because creditors uh, do not have uh, much incentive to come to the table to negotiate, to renegotiate that in time of crisis. So this new debt landscape raises the question of, of coordination of creditors, but also of how to prevent those crises. So what does the Paris Club do uh, to, uh, to, to, to face those challenges? Well, first of all, uh, as you said, the, the Paris Club is uh, the principal forum for restructuring official uh, bilateral debt. And we, we are working on fostering greater coordination among official creditors. Um, we, have, um, we have been uh, cr created since uh, 60 years now, and I think that over our 60 years of, of ex uh, existence, we have uh, built a strong and robust uh, track record on how to uh, provide a timely and orderly um, a solution to um, payment difficulties of debtor countries. And we, we, we want to build on that track record and, 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 and try to uh, work on the broader inclusion of emerging creditors. Um, we have uh, welcomed um, in 2016 uh, Brazil and South Korea um, within the Paris Club. And we also um, work with uh, other creditors on an ad hoc basis. Uh, and for instance, South Africa, but also China, participate to a lot of our work. Um, besides this um, broader inclusion of, of members in the Paris Club, I think it's important also to highlight the fact that the Paris Club also acts as a coordination, as a creditor coordination platform. I think uh, it's something that is not well known, but um, over its uh, more than 400 debt treatments that we have done through the Paris Club since 60 years of existence, uh, more than one-third of those debt treatments have associated creditors that were not part of the Paris Club at the time or are, not, are still not part of the Paris Club. So it means that this, this forum is also relevant for countries that are not part of the Paris Club. And um, another question of coordination that Deborah mentioned is, is coordination, of course, among official creditors, but also among official and private sector. And this is an issue that we worked a, a lot uh, upon at the Paris Club through regular dialogue with the International Institute of Finance. We've, we've had this long-standing dialogue for almost 20 years now. Um, that uh, where we discuss very concrete uh, cases, but also very systemic issues, such as, for instance, sustainable lending practices. So I think it's very important to mention also that point. Um, of course, resolution of, of crisis, of debt crisis, is essential. But I think <laughs> prevention, as a, as as uh, as you said, is even better. And um, I think. One axis of prevention is, is first of all, to, to, to foster greater dialogue among all stakeholders, meaning among creditors, of course, but also among creditors and debtors, and among creditors, debtors, and the civil society. I think it's very important to build communist understanding on current debt issues. Um, we, we have done so through the Paris Forum that has been created in 2013 that gathers debtors, creditor countries, but also civil society, and discuss um, very different issues. Uh, for instance, we've discussed, again, this um, issue of sustainable lending practices, but we also um, uh, discussed very technical issues, such as collateralized debt, for instance. That was the main theme of our last uh, workshop at the Paris Forum. So. 
as I said, prevention will also go through better implementation of sustainable lending practices. And I think you, you had a panel yesterday on that, on that specific issue, so I, I don't want to be long on that. But what is important in implementing sustainable lending practices, sustainable financing practices from part of debtors and creditors is, first of all, the question of transparency and, um, and also of better reporting of debt. So it, it raises the question of sort of capacity building for uh, countries in order to be able to monitor and report uh, debt and in order to have um, accurate uh, coverage of that debt. Uh, and it also raises the, the, the issue of consistency of financing, um, consistency of, of lending, taking into account the debt sustainability analysis provided by the international financial institutions, and also when they apply debt limit policies, for instance. Yes, I think I'm <laughs> my time is up, so maybe I should stop here and I could come back to any of those issues. Thank you very much. I think it's a um, useful reminder, and I think several people have said it, that obviously prevention is better than cure, so we should be thinking about that as well. And also the difficulties you're mentioning of coordinating in a more complicated <coughs> creditor coordination in a more complicated uh, landscape. And it made me think also, what about de debtor coordination? So maybe someone has an answer uh, to that thought. Um, okay, so now it's time for questions uh, from the floor. And if you're watching online, I'm going to give you two minutes to think of some really good questions, and I'll, I'll read them out if they're really good. Uh, and in those two minutes, everyone in the room, I'd like you to turn to your neighbour uh, and see if you can, from all the ideas and thoughts you've heard, what seem to you to be the most promising ideas about solutions when it comes to resolving debt crises. So just turn to your neighbour, and I'll give you two minutes to talk about solutions. Okay, I'm going to ask you to wrap up uh, your interesting conversations and we'll come back to the panel.
Okay, thank you, everybody. If I could, uh, if I could ask you, if I could ask everybody to wrap up your your conversations. I know, I know, it's very dangerous uh, opening the floodgates to discussion with so many interesting people in the room. And luckily, we all have lunch together, so you can carry on those conversations afterwards. But hopefully, that sparked a few ideas for questions and comments. So what I'm going to take is a round of questions from the room, then I'll come back to the panel, then I'll do it again, and I'll come back to the panel to answer them and wrap up. So we'll probably get time for two, two uh, uh, sessions, two sections of questions. So I'm looking around the room, and I'm also encouraging uh, people online to ask questions. I'd really like to start with a woman, which is a good practice in this situation. Sheila. Uh, Sheila Page, and it does slightly come out of our quick conversation here. Yes, you should think about this before you take on the debt. Yes, it should be written into the debt documents. And this is something which, as has been pointed out, the Paris Club has been able to say for the last 60 years. Uh, some of us for, for perhaps 40 years, the Jubilee for 20 years. I mean, it's, and it's not particularly odd as a concept that you should know what you're agreeing to before you sign the agreement. Uh, so I think the, the question is, what can we do to ensure that common sense actually prevails on the part of both debtors and creditors? Because presumably it's over-optimism, the it-won't-happen-again syndrome that has stopped people from preparing for the worst. But after, I was going to say 60 years, but perhaps more of like 200 years of meeting the worst, why don't we write these into the contracts? So what do we do to make common sense prevail? So I'm looking for questions over here. I've got one and then two. And say who you are and if you have an affiliation, what it is. Yeah, I'm Sanziki Charles Conte, Head of Public Debt Management, uh, Ministry of Finance, Sierra Leone. Yeah, uh, I want to direct my question to, to the lady. I'm sorry, the name again. Um, um, Isabel, okay, from Paris Club. Yeah, you spoke about coordination, which is, which is key. Okay, coordination among creditor uh, players. But mind you, if I can put the creditors into two broad categories, you have the private sector, okay, and then of course the multilateral and official bilateral. And these two group of players have different objectives. On the, the former is to promote, um, of course, uh, profitability, increase shareholder welfare, while for multilateral and future bilateral is to, to satisfy um, country the, the, uh, owners uh, uh, of these institutions, their, their interest, okay, which may not necessarily be profitability. Okay? So the first group is about profitability, share value announcement, whereas the other is to promote member country interest, which is not profitable as the case may be. So, and until there is a fusion of these two objectives, okay, at that level, it is difficult for coordination, okay, to, to happen. So what do you think is the way forward, given these two diverse uh, interests of these two parties? That's great. So that's about the different interests of the creditors and how, how does that play out? So, yes, the gentleman at the back. Hi, my name is uh, Mark Boland. I'm an African economist for Bloomberg. So my question has got to do with the... U.S. position for uh, restructuring, also the legal position. I mean, it's viewed. Uh, my impression was that you know the U.S. Treasury has been viewed as maybe shooting down the sovereign debt restructuring mechanism, and, uh, and maybe some people expecting or hoping that they would uh, try to push for some kind of change of legislation either before or after the uh, 
district court of New York uh, ruled on the on the side of bondholders against Argentina, and now you have a situation where I don't know. I guess our Chinese colleagues from the from the Chinese embassy could see, but I'm quite, you know, I can see a situation where Beijing would be quite happy, and now we also have Saudi Arabia forgiving debt to Africa, while, uh, you know, these bondholders, euro bondholders, are, are probably going to be considerably less uh, prepared to any kind of restructuring. Is there more pressure on the US to, to move on this issue now, or uh, is, is it still as it was uh, five, six? six years ago. Thank you. Great. Specific question about the role of the US. I've got a gentleman here, and then I'll come around over here. Yep. Uh, I'm Alan Witchworth from uh, DFID. Uh, I'd like to get some advice from uh, Tim in particular on a moral hazard issue that we're currently grappling with in Zambia. Zambia received more HIPIC per capita than any other country. The objective of that debt relief was to release fiscal space to the government so that it could invest more in health, education, and uh, uh, things of benefit to the poor. What has actually happened is completely different. The populist government that was elected in 2011 has basically been on a spending spree ever since. It increased civil service salaries by 40% overnight. It's undertaken a massive road investment program where almost all of the roads were known to be uneconomic before they started on the program. Uh, they're building a, an airport terminal which has 10 times the capacity of current traffic. I, I could give several other examples. Uh, and they recently kicked out the IMF rep. <laughs> uh, and recently, they have approached DFID. Could we help them with debt restructuring? I'd be grateful for your advice. What kind of message would we be sending to, to Zambians and, and to others if we help Zambia to restructure its current debt, given everything that's gone before? Great specific question about moral hazard in Zambia. I'll take the last question over here, then I'll come back to the panel. Uh, hi, I'm Xiao from China. Uh, yeah, many speakers mentioned about the uh, emerging markets and the uh, quite a few of newcomers. I just want to know that in this, uh, to deal with the uh, African debt issue, uh, how do you think the existing uh, creditors and the new uh, emerging markets can better coordinate with each other. And in particular, I don't know if you have any suggestions for the forthcoming G20 uh, summit, anything that they can, they should fo uh, focus particularly on uh, to address the, the current situation. Great. So what should the G20 do? So. Um, you can choose which questions to answer. Some of them are directed specifically at uh, Tim and Isabel, at least, maybe some others. Uh, I'll just go in the order that we started. So, Penelope. Yes, it seems to me that um, perhaps starting with Sheila's question, um, how do we get common sense to prevail? Um, and I guess the, the issue is often common sense um, is only common sense when, if it's in an, in an environment where it can truly be enforced. And it seems to me that we have 
not actually bridge that gap. And so we're living in this voluntary space, um, and how does one get the push for that? Um, and I think in a way perhaps it relates to the question about the US as well, about the need for real leadership. Um, whether that's in fact in the landscape right now um, is perhaps arguable, um, given that we've seen in so many cases very often the perpetrators of this, this problem with debt, people who've had very easy money perhaps going to, to bad causes as the, uh, the Zambian example exists. I mean, clearly Zambia is culpable, but the money has been made available at every turn again and again. Um, and so it seems to me that we've, we've got two sets of people tangoing and there's very little true moral leadership in the system. Um, and how does one enforce that? I'm not sure there are any easy answers to that. Thank you, Tim. Um, yeah, so on the direct question on Zambia and following on from that, um, the, it might be the moral hazard that you're presenting, but also if Zambia does not restructure the debt and pays it through IMF loans or somebody else's loans, then that's setting up the exact moral hazard the other way, that the private lenders who issued the bonds or the governments who've led, lent Zambia the money or the multilateral banks will be getting paid off and knowing that they can have undertaken very unsustainable, reckless lending and still get paid. So I would say, yes, there should be help with a debt restructuring Zambia and because it helps no one if that money just disappears in high interest payments out of the country. What should change is lending in the future and um, budget support in the future. Anything in that space is where you should be looking to change the uh, activities, but it's the debt, um, the debt restructuring needs to get the money off the private sector or other lenders who've acted recklessly. On the, what the G20 should do, um, two clear things. One is make a commitment to, from all governments and multilateral institutions to publish all loans that are being given to governments and put them in one place so that people of the countries concerned can hold the governments to account and enforce that on the private sector by saying that for a contract to be enforceable in UK or New York or anywhere else around the world, it has to have been publicly disclosed when it was given. And that's the way to incentivise the private sector to also have to comply. We've heard yesterday from the IAF uh, discussing some welcome proposals about how the private sector will voluntarily disclose information on their loans, but there will always be some who don't comply with that. And so we need um, a backstop uh, as a word of the moment in the UK to ensure that all private sector um, complies with it. And then the other thing is um, what I was trying to say in my talk, change the IMF rules to follow what their policies are actually meant to be. The IMF are not meant to lend into unsustainable debt situations, and if there is doubt, they're meant to require a debt reprofiling. Actually set up a system that says, here are the clear guidelines on when, if, for an IMF loan to be given, there has to be a debt restructuring as part of the process, so that the multilateral loans stop bailing out the reckless lenders and stop creating this moral hazard on the part of the lenders. 
Great, and do you have a, an answer to Mark's question about the US and how do we overcome their intransigence? Um, well, I mean, I don't see it, it depends on what issue, but um, say on the um, process at the UN General Assembly, it wasn't just the US, the UK were as intransigent as them, and so I speak as somebody in the UK. Um, I mean, I think on um, the cha possibilities of changing laws, an important point with the US is that it's New York law that governs, that is in the um, contracts, and so it doesn't necessarily need to be at a uh, um, federal level. But I think with all these things, getting the governments who are willing to work together to work together to create a better system, and then if somebody else wants to be um, not take part in that, ultimately contracts, if we get a better system working um, elsewhere in the world, contracts will move towards that system and the US would become increasingly isolated. Good. And I know your colleagues in Jubilee USA have campaigned to change the model of contracts in Albany and New York where the, most of those are issued, which also might be one answer. Benu. Uh, thanks. Coming to Sheila's question on common sense. Uh, the issue is that there are different incentive structures at work and that is why common sense does not prevail. Uh, the incentive structures in favor of creditors. So I showed you the chart on recovery values um, in the cash flow. If recovery values have been high, um, and what I've not discussed is the risk premium that countries have paid before it came to the debt restructuring. Uh, so there are no big losses there for them to behave differently. And then with the IMF policy of lending into arrears, if you look at the way the Greek uh, debt restructuring was carried out, what did it benefit? It benefited banks in Germany and France that actually did irresponsible lending to uh, Greece. And Greece has a higher debt stock today because of the way the, the debt restructuring was carried out. So the incentive structure, uh, uh, the only way you can have common sense is by changing the underlying incentive structure. And that comes through a variety of policies, the role of the IMF, you know, other bodies. So uh, on your question, on the Paris Club and about coordination of creditors, uh, you raise this question. And that's interesting because uh, you cannot get comparability of treatment where uh, the debt that was incurred is, uh, I mean, uh, the private sector gets a risk premium over whatever they're lending. So what they're recovering on the loans and what the um, uh, bilateral creditors are. And so, um, uh, and the terms at which other loans are being given out. So, uh, so, <coughs> so there, there are different terms and conditions of each contract. And to bring about a coordination between them is a very difficult task. So comparability is a big issue at stake, and it's not that easy to bring about a comparability of uh, even uh, between the official and the private sector, but even within the private sector, because the terms of the contracts are different, and what each creditor is recovering is a different uh, uh, thing. Um, what uh, about the US? I mean, the only front on which the US moved after the Argentine case was uh, the Treasury had a working group in which Deborah uh, and some others here, Yanis participated, uh, was to set out the aggregation clauses in the Paris-Passu clause. So the change in contractual technology for bonds has come about because of an initiative taken by the US. And at the moment, I don't see any signs of any further work which the US is promoting. But that's something that was already done after uh, the Argentine litigation. Um, 
uh, and uh, a, on uh, what the G20 could do. Um, a, I think you'll find that on the United Nations Financing for Development website. There's a proposal called the Sovereign Debt Forum, which is basically a platform in which debtors and creditors engage with each other, uh, and which would lead to institution building in the form of memory of past de uh, debt restructurings, best practices, lessons. So there's nothing binding in it in terms of how the restructuring is to be carried out, but it's basically a platform on which debtors and creditors engage with each other. And that is something which the G20 uh, could possibly look at. Richard Gitlin is the author of that paper. If needed, I can establish the contact to the author. But there is a proposal around to take this forward for better engagement between debtors and creditors. Thank you very much. Deborah? Um, so I just wanted to say that access to funding and uh, lending is a really good thing because I sense a bit of negativity here. It's the use that you make with that money uh, for positive reasons uh, and to increase you know, productivity or to increase fiscal revenues or to increase infrastructure that, that is important. Uh, you know, lending and access to it is, is a good thing and I, I think sometimes in these conversations we sort of lose sight of that a little bit. Uh, I mean, I, th I think the U.S., uh, again, we shouldn't underplay how significant U.S. Treasury staff hosting the, the roundtable that led to the bond innovations was. It was a, a really um, you know, good thing, and they brought into that roundtable the private sector, Paris Club Secretariat, a number of different countries in emerging and developed uh, markets, and also um, secondary market participants and so on. And so to me, uh, as well as industry bodies, and obviously uh, ICMA and, and the IMF, but to me that sort of collaboration just showed where there's a will, how much can be done in a very short space of time, because the work really took about 18 months. And then, you know, once it was endorsed by, by the IMF executive board and the IIF and the G20, it immediately started to be taken up in, in sovereign bonds. And I, I think it's, it's a real achievement. And if that model of cooperation can be replicated across other initiatives, I think it will also lead um, to good things. I'm not sure where President Trump stands on, on debt issues at the moment, but I think <laughs> how he reacts to the um, evolving crisis in Venezuela will be, you know, something to watch to get a bit of a sense. Uh, clearly, you'll be aware that some people, and it's been touched on very briefly, have been saying that through the use of um, U.S. legislation, New York law, etc., something could be done to um, introduce features in New York law-governed bonds that might facilitate a restructuring. To me, that sends huge alarm bells because for a government to pass legislation to uh, affect contracts negotiated by third parties, albeit under their governing law, seems like it could have very significant ramifications for the bond markets and many unintended consequences. So I, I think that has to be um, watched very carefully. Um, I think we overestimate the understanding that people have on, on contracts. Apologies for being a lawyer again. But, you know, when you look at a, a country, you have uh, the Ministry of Finance entering into um, contracts. You have the central bank 
you have state-owned enterprises, you have other companies that may be doing it on the back of a specific sovereign guarantee or a multilateral development bank guarantee. Then you have, you know, quasi sort of guarantee collateral arrangements, etc. Uh, many derivatives products nowadays uh, used, whether they be repo, you know, total return swaps, credit derivatives, etc. And even if, you, if you're the authorities in the Ministry of Finance at that point in time, you're looking to fill your financing gap in that year's budget. If you're, you know, the central banker, you're looking at your sort of treasury function as well as supporting the Ministry of Finance. You have different civil servants, different officials moving from one agency of state to another, different, uh, you know, sort of ministers and undersecretaries of state. So, I think in order to capacity build and in order for countries to have better tools to refinance, reprofile, do liability managements, you almost have to recommend that there be some sort of um, oversight across agencies of state that keep an eye on you know, some of these issues. And I, I think that could actually make a, a big practical difference um, to countries that are trying to grapple with their stock of debt. Thank you very much. And Isabel, you have various questions directed at you and an additional one coming from online from Claire McPherson at DFID about how to get uh, non-Paris club creditors, official creditors engaged uh, in coordination. Okay. Um, on, on the first question on common sense, uh, yes, we have to build the right incentive. We also have to build, again, common understanding on, the, on, the, on, the, on those debt issues and on the risks and solutions. Uh, that could be implemented. I think we need to raise awareness and, and build capacity, as Deborah said. I think it's very important to build capacity also to better understand and to and to be able to deal with those challenges. Uh, about on the question of coordination, I, th I think the question is, is about how to deliver timely uh, resolution of that crisis. And, and it all comes down to coordination. I think when, when you come to debt restructuring, time is of the essence. And, and, and when you have a coordinating body, uh, it, it is always more timely. So um, how to make sure that creditors come to the table when needed. And uh, again, it, it's through um, coordination uh, forums, for instance, for the official side uh, through the Paris Club, but also through, uh, of course, enhanced uh, uh, um, CACs uh, for, for contracts. So. Um, I think that's a very important issue. On what uh, can the on, on the G20 uh, side and what can the G20 do? Uh, I think um, that, that what is important uh, uh, is um, again to, to, to stress the the implementation of a sustainable uh, financing practices, and um, from from actually every stakeholder debtors, creditors, and among creditors, official creditors and private creditors. I think it's very important that everyone um, be aware that they all share a responsibility in, in preserving sustainability of a country. Um, and uh, a last question on the um, SDRM, maybe uh, it's, uh, well, maybe there's no political will, you know, for such uh, architecture. But it doesn't mean there's an is, that there is no solution. And again, I think we should be pragmatic. And there are solutions for coordination. Again, I think the Paris Club is, is an informal group, very pragmatic group, to deliver that response in time of crisis. So again, it, it doesn't mean that it's the end of everything. 
What I'm proposing to do is to take a few more comments or questions from the audience and then I'll give everybody one minute to sum up your key points that you want to say or to respond to some of the questions. So start thinking, panellists, about your one, one minute. Let me see who is interested in asking questions. Okay, starting with Jaime. Thanks. Uh, a quick question. You just mentioned the SDRM. Oh, sorry, I'm Jaime from Oxfam. Uh, you just mentioned the SDRM. We've been hearing about all the different initiatives and uh, the arbitration mechanism, the debt workout mechanism. We've had different versions of this same idea of sitting everyone around the table, but it doesn't seem to advance. And I just wanted to pose first a question for, for Deborah and Isabel, sitting in the Paris Club and with your kind of legal background looking at all these things. Do you think this would be a desirable one to have a very structured forum to deal with everything? Or should we go to a more pragmatic option that you were as you were raising right now I, I think uh, but is it possible to have a club where effectively everyone is sitting around the table for a, for a final negotiation that's easier for countries and uh, related to this I think and maybe for the other panelists if you will in, in your minute um, what do you think are the main obstacles uh, Isabel was talking about political will as such do you think there are other things that scare countries about demanding this or what are the reasons we have never seen kind of strong enough energy behind this idea. Gentleman at the back. Uh, uh, thanks, uh, it's Sivu from South Africa. Sorry, uh, there was a slide that was reflected on, on recovery rates. I think it, it pertained to defaults. Uh, to what extent can you correlate the the debt classification and its seniority to the haircut and recovery rate. For example, uh, does it imply that a senior uh, secured debt uh, would have a higher recovery rate than a you know, senior unsecured type of a thing? Yes, thanks. Thank you very much. Do we have more questions or comments? From the audience. Okay, that means, panelists, you have maximum 1 minute 45 seconds each. So, lucky you. Uh, let's do it in the opposite order. So, Isabel, would you like to go? I'm sorry. <laughs> you have to stop. Um, okay, well, um, I think, uh, again, um, we, in, in the current debt landscape, we will see more complex uh, financial schemes. We see more actors also coming in. So uh, I think what, what the, the, today's um, panel show is, is first of all that we need to uh, um, have an enhanced dialogue among all of us, all, all the stakeholders, um, all the different actors uh, in, in, um, in sovereign lending and sovereign financing. And um, that we should um, uh, try to, um, to maximum implement sustainable financing practices and, and build on, on, on pragmatism, on, 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 on common fora, common existing fora to, uh, to, to, to reach that coordination of creditors that is needed in order to find timely solutions. So I think, I think that's, that's the important point. Um, so in my experience, uh, you know, in the, in the 25 years I've been working in this field, 
evolutions tend to be incremental and be in response to practical problems that arise. So, you know, on the aggregated CACs and the uh, disavowing rateable payment interpretation of Pripassive was very much a response to Argentina and to Greece. Uh, the previous CACs, again, was, you know, a response to Argentina in part. Now the debt transparency initiative among the private sectors in response to the G20 work in that area, but also to what happened in Mozambique. And so you see these incremental sort of improvements. I think, I actually think we're almost moving further away from SDRM because of the complexities of the market now. And so as product types become more complicated and de-risking becomes more important and you have more official sector participants, more bilateral lenders. Uh, the intercreditor issues are greater than ever before. We haven't talk, talked about preferred creditor status and there's sort of um, you know, disagreements between the private and official sector and among the official sector about what that actually means and so forth. So I sort of think there are so many more questions to be resolved that the challenges of creating uh, a, a one solution, one treaty that you know all countries could sign up to um, either independently or through the UN or the IMF, etc., I think are moving away from us. So that's not to say at some point that not might that might not that might be a good thing, but I just think from a practical perspective, I, I can't see it. Thanks. Um, I'll pick up from where Deborah left off. The change is incremental. So the incremental change I propose is to learn from the U.S. Treasury example that aggregation paripasu clauses have come into existence because the Treasury took the initiative. So I would appeal to the Treasury in U.K., <coughs> Netherlands, other developed countries, that they take the initiative to set up such a study group, a technical group, which sets out the changes that are needed in clauses for commercial bank loans and then go about it the same way that the U.S. Treasury did. At the moment, in the political climate in the U.S., I don't see it happening, but the other countries could take the initiative and, and run with it and put it together and this thing. So that, that is the first next incremental step that I propose. Uh, apart from the things which Isabel uh, uh, talked about. And then there was one question directed at me regarding recovery rates. Um, the, uh, the chart which I showed was just respect to one bond that Ecuador uh, defaulted on and the yield on that particular bond. Uh, obviously, recovery rates are different for different investors. Uh, the analysis was just done with the respect of one bond, both in terms of uh, expected uh, uh, net present values and uh, the cash flow. Uh, but for, for each type of debt, uh, you will get a different recovery rate depending on the terms of the contract and when they defaulted and what they defaulted on and the rest of it. Okay. Thank you very much, Tim. Um, so I think clearly the reason we haven't got a comprehensive debt restructuring mechanism is because of the lack of political will. Um, specifically, it's a lack of political will in the major financial centres like the US and UK. Um, one of the things we've witnessed is this cycle of when debt crises seem to be lower, 
people saying we don't need this because there's no problem and then when we are in debt crises we get the response well we can't deal with this now because we're in crisis and but I I guess that that seems a long-off goal that is quite hard to achieve the bottom-up way to doing it is getting a different way of dealing with the debt restructuring in individual countries uh, we were quite heartbroken a few years ago when the Caribbean island of Grenada <laughs> called for a fully comprehensive negotiation, a conference like Germany had in 1953 with all its creditors to agree how much was sustainable and then get it down to that level. Grenada made a very public pool, call to, for this to happen and it was largely ignored by the creditors, which is a mix of bilaterals, uh, private sector and multilaterals. If Zambia now are offer, uh, were wanting help on debt restructuring, part of that should be a strong suggestion about how to get all the creditors in the same room um, to discuss it. So I think it can be built from a lower up level rather than a whole global mechanism when debt restructurings are needed, get everyone in the room, get some independent advice on what um, level of debt is sustainable and um, hammer it out all together. Thank you very much, Penelope. Thank you. Just taking um, my cue from Tim, I think, I mean, the big issue that comes out is that clearly there's no room for complacency although there is a sense sometimes that people say let's not panic and then of course we end up in the situation where people say oh well it's too soon to panic and then it's too late to panic and mm -hmm. so um so the issue seems to be that yes we need to do something now and we need initiatives right now um part of the thing that i think came out as um as a theme today from the earlier session but also from this session was the, the real push to somehow engage civil society in greater awareness as to what is going on. Um, I don't think either the Greeks or, in fact, the German um, citizens really knew what went down during the Greek crisis in terms of who, who those loans were for and what they were for. And I think if we're going to try and do a, a ground-up change, then we need a better informed civil society. And I think part of that is also... Um, to work together in a kind of complementarity. I think many of the agencies, many of the different private versus um, more NGO, more public sector um, institutions often see themselves as in competition in this process. Um, and I think I would call for saying our work is complementary. So whether we're working on market-based um, changes of contracts or whether we're trying to engage in a higher level of saying how does one work from one initiative into enforcement across very many member states. Um, there's room for all of that going forward. Thank you very much. I think we're just about out of time now, um, so I, I won't attempt to summarise what's been a very interesting and rich discussion, and hopefully it's sparked some ideas and thoughts in your head that you can take forward uh, into the lunch break later on. Uh, I will say one thing that seems clear to me from the discussion is there's some discussion of prevention uh, of unsustainable debt crisis and cure, but actually the two are very intimately linked because, as we've seen, the incentives for both lending and borrowing depend a lot on what you expect might happen in the kind of situation you might get yourself into in the future. So there's, a, I think, a need to bring all of that uh, discussion together. So it just remains for me to say a big warm thank you to our panellists who are both extremely interesting and extremely disciplined in keeping to time, both of which I appreciate a lot. So thank you very much.
Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.